Hey everybody, Mark B. here. Just wanted to step in real quick before the podcast starts to address something that is going to be readily apparent as soon as you start listening to the podcast for this week, and it is this. This is a two-part podcast that will be dealing with the concept of, as the title implies, Tokyo Mirage Sessions and the concept of video game musicals. Unfortunately, I came up with this concept relatively early in the podcast's run, but the person I wanted to sit down and record with for the second part of the podcast only recently became available. What this means is that this first part of the podcast is something that I've been sitting on since approximately July, and because of that, I recorded this using my original equipment, which means that it sounds like it was recorded inside of a toilet bowl. I do apologize about that, and... I do hope that you can forgive this lapse in audio quality for a week before we get to the standard quality you have come to expect next week, but I just wanted to address it just so you know what's going on. I'm aware that the equipment was crap at that point. That's since been resolved. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only video game podcast that floats in soup. Uh, my name is Mark B., and joining me today is a friend of mine, uh, Miss Lola Mendoza. How are you doing today, Lola? I'm doing pretty good, Mark. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. So, Lola is one of the first people I've brought in that isn't directly associated with the diehard game fan brand name and is not actually a critic of gaming in the strictest sense. The reason being, what I wanted to talk about was something that falls a little bit outside of the world of gaming, but has its actual ties in there. So for that, I actually want to back up a bit. Recently, I've been playing Tokyo Mirage Sessions, which I've been doing almost entirely while live streaming so that others can watch, even though they might not have a Wii U readily available. So you get the experience of playing the game without necessarily playing it. And one of the things that I've noticed about the game is that while a lot of people are talking about how the game very much borrows from Persona or very much borrows from things like Sailor Moon and other, you know, Magical Girl animes or Sentai shows, the thing that nobody's really talking about is that Tokyo Mirage Sessions is kind of the perfect video game musical. And on one hand, I'm kind of confused that that isn't a topic that we've really seen come up. But, more interestingly, I wanted to talk about why. Now, Lola, you've been there for at least some of the live streams. You've seen bits and pieces of how the game integrates music performances into what it's trying to do. That's correct. It's been a pretty interesting watch. Now, <clears throat> I know that you're, shall we say, more of a casual gamer, so I wouldn't necessarily think outside of maybe something like Parappa the Rapper, that you've had a lot of exposure to some of the more niche games that do this kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's correct. I only really play games, uh, you know, for fun. Um, I don't really have any kind of professional background, uh, aside from basic rhythm games. Um, I haven't really come across other games that incorporate any kind of musical aspect like this. Okay. On the other hand, Let's talk about what you do know. Now, you are pretty big in the theater scene. Well, I love watching theater. Um, I'm currently attending uh, 
a, my local community college uh, in getting back into theater. I've always had a big love of it. Um, and I've actually uh, started watching more of the community pieces as well. So I've, I'm pretty big into theater. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not really big personally, but I'm learning. <laughs> well, that's fair. I, for as long as I've known you, you have been interested in the idea of theatrical performance, acting, things like that. And you're one of the few people that I know who's gone out of your way to try and watch older films in addition to what's currently available or what's easily accessible through, you know, Netflix or rental services or what have you. Yeah, I do love seeing the transition and what we used to have, you know, in the film genres um, and basically kind of seeing how it's kind of turned into this loud and fast, basically hour and a half of commercials, you know, just a lot of quick information. So it's, it's been an interesting thing to try to learn about. On the other hand, you're also somebody who's been really into theatrical productions, Broadway plays, and musicals. So much so that I believe at one point we were talking for multiple months about the reality TV show where they were going to cast the, the theatrical release of Grease. Yep, I remember that. Um, I was so excited uh, as far as learning that they were going to, I believe it was going to be a revival of Grease on Broadway, and they were going to just generally cast uh, two unknown actors to be the leads of Danny and Sandy. So, and the two that I had uh, been rooting for, the uh, brunette Sandy and the not so, uh, the kind of the underdog Danny. I believe his name was Max Crum, and he was, I believe he was from Arizona. So, yeah, I was, I was very excited to watch that. So, from that perspective, you would be somebody who would be able to maybe help us understand a little bit about theatrical language, musical language, and how that sort of stuff might potentially be applied to the world of gaming. Like, essentially, we can introduce concepts and you might be able to help us fill in the blanks a little bit. I'd be happy to. All righty, let's get started. Now, all right, let's step back a little bit. It's easy to say that Tokyo Mirage Sessions might be the perfect video game musical, but there are things that we kind of have to qualify a little bit before we get to the point of understanding why that might be, and perhaps more importantly, why we haven't seen that kind of thing before, or very often in any case. So let's start from the beginning with a discussion on how media has kind of evolved from theater to film and television to video gaming in terms of what they do and how they do it. So. Let's start with a simple one. From a visual perspective, theater and film clearly use different kinds of language in order to communicate what it is they're trying to get across to the viewer. If you go to a play, it's going to be a completely different experience presentation-wise, visually, etc., from watching a movie. Take us through some of that, like what techniques maybe that a play might use or what qualities somebody who is in a play might have as an example that they wouldn't have in like a film production well film is it's very personal the camera gets right in your face and sees all of the subtleties my um my acting teacher said that the camera is the ultimate lie detector so when someone isn't real and it shows up on film you can tell 
on stage, there's a little bit more leeway, and a person that wants to make very strong choices in their characters, the subtlety doesn't necessarily have the ability to be there because you have to project to the person in the very back row. So very intimate moments have to be projected quite loudly. So a person has to be able to evoke that emotion in an intimate way while still being able to have that accessible to everybody there in the theater, not just visually, but as well as vocally. So from a, a film versus theater perspective, film might be the study of acting realistically. Theater might be a bit more about overacting, perhaps. That's usually how that runs. Um, that's kind of been my annoyance with theater sometimes, because I've always been a, uh, the type of actor who likes things very organically. And when one person is definitively playing a character that is almost caricaturish, while others are a little bit more organic, it kind of t it gets rid of that, um, that we're, it's easy to lose the suspension of disbelief. So now there are other things that film can do that theater cannot, and that theater can do that film cannot. Let's talk about, for example, the concept of, say, your scene transition. In film, that's usually an instantaneous thing. You just decide you want to go somewhere else, and you go somewhere else. In theater, it often involves either a quick break or the actual physical transition of one thing to another. Correct. Usually the lights will go down, either all the way black or into a blue, depending on how, um, you know, you have to move around set pieces or, you know, it'll fade to black and you'll go to another part of the stage, you know, start out on stage right, fade to black, lights go up, stage left, and you're in a completely different place. And it's a lot more difficult. It takes a little bit more time other than just, you know, fade out, you know, fade back in, and you're somewhere else. Now, we don't really see scene transitions so much in film because there's not really a need for it. But it's also it also kind of has a, I would say from a film perspective, it would be more of a surrealist kind of thing. Like, if you were to have an actual visual scene transition, that would come across as weird or awkward. Whereas with the theater, it's kind of an accepted thing. Absolutely. I mean, at the beginning of film, you know, it would have, you know, the little scene changes. You'd have the words on the screen saying, three days later at the doctor's office. And, you know, it's changed over. Uh, it's, it's kind of gotten to be more, I guess, a, a hokey thing now where you can just kind of, the, the, scene, the scene transitions are accepted in theater rather than film now that everything is a lot more fast-paced and film audiences are a lot quicker to pick up on it. I also feel like theater and film kind of have more of a personal relationship with the person watching. Like, theater allows the actual theatrical participants to talk directly to the people in front of them. So even if you're not necessarily intending to project to the people out in the audience... Or sometimes, even if you are, if a specific play actually requires you to do it, you're still directly interacting with those people. You're still talking at or to those people. Whereas with film, it, it's kind of weird when a film breaks the wall, like breaks that fourth wall, because that fourth wall physically exists where it doesn't necessarily in theater and plays. Exactly. Um, the, unless the character is 
the type of character that, you know, traditionally does break the fourth wall, you know, like Deadpool. You know, I think that's probably the more popular character that we've seen that with. Um, it's much more easier for theater since the audience is right there to reach out and make connection to the audience and use them as a fuel to feed the energy on stage. So whether they're addressing the audience or not, actors on the stage directly feed off of that audience energy. When an audience is laughing, is crying, you feel it and you're able to project more um, of that emotion that's being fed to you from the audience. Is there anything that you can think of in the differences between their languages that I might have missed here? Well, it also really depends on the production you're going to go see. Obviously, if you go see a play like, you know, any kind of Shakespearean play or anything from uh, Greek tragedy, from Greek things like that, you're expecting to have the production presented to you in a manner that would not necessarily be used to present it in film. And you're going for that submersive experience. Whereas generally in film, it tends to have that language presented to you in a way that's more easily accessible to the public. But one of the films that I remember where they actually took the step beyond and incorporated the real language was the uh, version of Romeo and Juliet, where the Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes depicted the couple. The Boz Lerman version. Right. And they actually kept the actual trans, uh, the actual Shakespearean text. And it did really, I believe it did really well, if I remember correctly. But usually, if you're doing a movie, you want to have more people find it easily accessible. So translations to modern uh, or toning down original language, you find that a lot more. Right. Well, I mean, Boz Lerman is really kind of an experimental director who tries to blend theatrical and film language in interesting ways. So it's not surprising that he would go in and try to make a Romeo and Juliet that would be theatrically accurate, but as a movie. Right. Speaking of Mr. Lerman, and moving into the concept of, of his ever-so-wonderful Moulin Rouge, transitioning from here, we do kind of want to go into the idea of how musicals relate to this, but... Before I get there, there's actually a term I've heard thrown around in a couple of places when discussing how musicals work, and that's the concept of diegesis. From how I understand it, diegesis essentially works more or less as the distinction point between what actually exists in the world at the moment versus what does not. So, for a simple example, when you're watching a superhero movie, the background music doesn't exist in the world in which the characters are interacting, but the people, their interactions, and their actual physical world that they exist in are all part of that diegetic narrative. So, for example, diegetic elements in a film might be, again, the characters who actually physically exist there, the way that they interact with one another, the buildings, the cup of coffee that they might be drinking out of, things like that. Non-diegetic elements, by comparison, would be, say, their background music. More importantly, things like fantasy sequences, say, for example, something out of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, or a dream sequence. Oh, the entirety of Season 9 Dallas, which I imagine was really weird for everybody watching that. Perhaps most notably, as you had suggested with Deadpool, the fourth wall break. 
for those who didn't see Deadpool, maybe say something like Wayne's World or High Fidelity might fill that one in. Now, that's kind of important when we start getting into the discussion of musicals because of how musicals treat their actual performances. Musicals kind of work within the idea that people bursting into song is meant to be more often than not symbolic, or at least that's how I've taken it. Do you have any kind of input on that? The way that I've been finding it is, and uh, explained to me as well, it's like when people burst into song, it's that expression of emotions that can't be said by words alone. So it's meant more as a way of trying to express an emotional state without simply trying to, but trying to do it in a way where it's more clear and more direct instead of trying to get a violent inference. Right, and even just more being more expressive about it. You're going to be able to convey to a large audience that, yes, I'm really in love with this person when you start thinking about how, you know, they make the sunrise. It's, it lets you evoke emotions in the audience and brings that bit of fancifulness to it or that, that bit of, um, you know, tragedy or anger. There's something that with, that the, the music and the language it allows you to evoke more of the emotion than just words, especially in such a large scale. Okay. So it's, it's essentially meant as a sort of method by which you can express yourself, but perhaps more clearly and more directly than simple saying a thing or acting might do. Exactly. So... Here's where things get a little bit more complicated. Diegesis is also not a hard and fast rule. For example, background music, as we said, is generally non-diegetic, unless it's shown that it's actually being played directly in the environment. So, for example, if you see a scene transition where music is being played out of somebody's boombox or out of their car stereo or in their house on a stereo system, at that point, the background music becomes diegetic. I, I suppose the example that is most immediately obvious would be the ninja rap sequence during Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. <laughs> One of my favorites. Yeah. Or vanilla <laughs> ice. It's terrible, but I love it. Yeah. But it's 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 definitely background music, but it's diegetic because he is actually performing this song that he just happened to come up with off the top of his head, as if that's a thing we can believe. And it's it's directly a diegetic experience, but it also allows for background music while the fight scene is going on. Right. Dream sequences are also not always definitively non-diegetic. The movie Inception is based entirely around dream sequences, but the characters are physically invading these dream sequences, making that a diegetic part of the narrative. The sequences in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World where he's dreaming are also technically diegetic because Ramona Flowers frequently shows up in those dream sequences and interacts with Scott in some form or fashion. Again, fourth wall breaking is occasionally, surprisingly enough, diegetic. While a movie like The Big Short or, you know, Saved by the Bell does not treat these as diegetic elements since nobody knows that these things are happening but the characters who are breaking the fourth wall, 
In Spaceballs, they actually have a sequence where that is a fully diegetic experience. The characters are quite clearly breaking the fourth wall when they're talking about being able to get instant VHS copies of the films that they're in and showing it off on screen. They're clearly fucking with the audience at that point, but it's also part of the diegesis. that It's acknowledged and justified. Where that becomes a bit of a problem is in that with musicals, unless it's an in-world performance... It's harder to really get whether or not a musical performance is diegetic. Like, for example, let's take Little Shop of Horrors. Obviously, the music that's in there is, is implied to be non-diegetic. But is it? I can, I can imagine that the dentist singing about how he has a talent for hurting the shit out of people is not a thing that's going to go over particularly well with his clientele. Certainly not if he punches the nurse in the mouth in the process. But is the part where Seymour and Audrey Jr. are singing about turning the dentist into plant food non-diegetic necessarily? Or to put it another way, the more absurd a movie gets, the harder it becomes to tell if a, a song might actually exist in that world. Like, as an example, I would believe that the majority of the songs in Rocky Horror Picture Show are diegetic. I would definitely agree with that. Rocky, The way that Rocky Horror picture show is set up it has that level of absurd absurdity that would allow you to accept that the musical numbers that are happening in there would definitely be something that could happen in that universe to bring this back into the topic of video games the reason why i'm bringing all of this up and the reason why we're clarifying this is because theater and film each have different sorts of potential downsides for trying to detail this sort of interaction. And we'll get to those in a moment. But video games don't really have those problems. Like, for example, let's take the concept of how theater works. Again, scene transitions, heavy overacting and gesticulating breaking of the fourth wall, things that don't necessarily work in film. Well, in video games, those things work perfectly fine, and we've been dealing with them for years at this point. The fourth wall is consistently broken when a tutorial comes up. The direct interaction with the audience in some capacity, again, same thing. Scene transitions, anybody who's played a Japanese role-playing game knows the immediate scene transition to a battle, and then the scene transition out. And insofar as, you know, wild gesticulations... Look at what you do when you have character models and sprites that don't necessarily match up to high-fidelity visual quality. You have them just wildly gesticulate to get over emotions that maybe the text and the voice actor can't do on their own because their faces kind of look like shit. It's, it very much can adapt to the idea of theatrical presentation. Because we've been doing this kind of stuff due to lower tech capabilities for years, and fans accept this. But it also works within the languages of film. You can deal with immediate transitions from location to location without having to worry about things being broken down and put back together. You can utilize cinematic presentation, the direct focused camera angles. In fact, you can utilize both the focused camera angle and the presentation-based angle, depending upon whether you're having a cinematic cutscene or an in-game interaction with somebody. 
you can have those hard tight camera angles on somebody when it's a pre-rendered scene and then just the panned out while gesticulating interacting to somebody who's watching from behind the fourth wall when you're in the game environment both film and theater have their limitations but video games combine the languages that they use kind of effortlessly in a lot of cases they really do i kind of liken it to seeing a computer generated image within a real life film it's a lot harder for it's a lot easier for people to pick up on that does not belong in this world and so it's a lot easier to make that disconnect whereas like if it was an, an animated feature where everything is animated it's a lot easier for you to believe that there would be a fanciful creature in this world so with video gaming having a, that ability to you know it's, it's a it's a it's a a medium that you expect to have these outlandish or you know otherworldly components while still being able to have that intimacy of the voice acting that you know the the cutscenes things like that it has it combines these two pretty much effortlessly. The, and I think it's the way that they're presented, it's the way they're presented to people that allows for that, not just the suspension of disbelief, as I mentioned, but also since you're playing, you're interacting with it, you have that intimacy as well. You're part of the story, you're facilitating this movement, these events. So yeah, it's, it's a great example of how film and the theater combined. And I mean, there's plenty of examples in gaming of where they take more advanced concepts of theater and apply those advanced concepts to the games in a way that drives those narrative forward. Uh, for example, the game Bastion features combat sequences where the character runs across an environment that rapidly assembles itself, kind of like a scene transition, directly in front of him as he's moving forward, and a narrator actively dictates everything he's doing as he progresses through the game. Kind of like you might see in a theatrical production with heavy narrative reliance. That Dragon Cancer frequently utilizes the art of scene transitions, where you'll turn in one direction and it'll be daytime in a room. You'll turn in the opposite direction and you could be in a completely different location. Or you could be in a completely different time of day. The actual scene doesn't change. It just transitions as you pan the camera in the opposite direction. The Stanley Parable, perfect example of narration while also subverting it in that you can disobey the narrator and the narrator becomes an active part of the story, but the world also will actively scene transition as you disobey and get more and more involved in the idea of questioning the nature of play within the confines of telling the story. The Beginner's Guide also from the same man does a similar sort of deconstruction of narration. And perhaps most interestingly, Call of Juarez Gunslinger is a game where the narrator will actively change the environment by misremembering a story and then having to correct himself so you could be fighting two guys and suddenly he'll remember, oh yeah, no, it was 20 and now you're fighting 20 guys. And the game just immediately transitions to that new thing that they came up with. Further, visually, a lot of games have tried to borrow from the concepts of theater. Black Knight's Sword and Puppeteer directly presented their game worlds as theatrical presentations of puppet shows. Foul Play has your characters acting on a stage and 
gauges your performance by how engaged the audience is. And perhaps most interestingly, and the one that's going to resonate with most people, Super Mario Brothers 3 is cast as a play. They they show the, the, the opening curtain in the very beginning. They show the different act transitions and scene transitions in that way. It's visually structured to have that sort of I'm watching theater concept associated with everything that you're doing in it. So with that in mind, musicals in that regard kind of fall into a sort of odd man out category insofar as theater and film goes, just because they don't they don't necessarily really comfortably fit in either world a hundred percent. Like they're their their own animal in, in a lot of respects due to as we discussed before, the idea of utilizing song to convey emotion. Yeah, I think it definitely, it all really kind of depends on the way that everything is framed, the the presentation of the, the musical, especially when you adapt musicals to film. You have to make sure that the world is equally presented to the audience in such a way that singing is not unusual, that bursting out into song is not something that people consider to be uh, such a jump from the everyday, the gritty realistic immediately contrasted with the musical over the top, that conveyance of emotion rather than, you know, something that could have been done with words. And it's such a, a stark contrast that it takes you out of what uh, you were you were watching. It does not allow you to connect with what's being portrayed on on the screen or in front of you. I feel like film had a much easier time of transitioning musicals back when film was mostly, for lack of a better way of describing it, kind of hokey. Yeah, definitely. Because back then, people were using film as a means of escape, especially like during the, the Depression. You know, people were miserable in their day-to-day -day lives, so they wanted to go and something that made them happy so song and dance was a quick way to do that they wanted to, to feel things other they wanted to escape reality so bursting out into musical numbers was definitely a way to do that and that wasn't conveyed as out of the norm it was just something that that entertained them and then sometime during the early 80s like late 70s early 80s i've seen a couple of people credit this to hello dolly but i don't necessarily know if i believe that Musicals kind of fell out of favor unless they were just really fucking ridiculous. Or Disney. Yep. Um, especially Disney. Um, you know, it, it made it seem like musicals were just something for kids, something fanciful. Especially having the, uh, the animated movies. Right, and it's... You can only really get away with doing that if you were doing an animated movie or a live-action movie that was decidedly more kid-friendly... Or if you were doing something ridiculous, like, again, a little shop of horrors, or... Yeah, exactly. Something that was obviously and patently absurd. Kitschy and, you know, campy. Right. And then, like, all of a sudden, we got a shitload of musicals starting in the 2000s for some strange reason. I thought it was great, especially uh, with Chicago. Um, and I thought it was a wonderful way to bring musicals back in into the mainstream. Um, I thought Chicago did a really great job of that, uh, presenting the musical numbers as both, you know, diegetic and non-diegetic. Um, you know, starting out with showing 
Selma performing in a nightclub and then having the rest of the musical numbers be performed in Roxy's head. Um, it was a way for audiences to realize, oh, hey, you know, it's not unusual for this to happen because she's thinking about it all. And they're overlapping it with what's happening in the jail cell, in, you know, the courtroom. And it's just, it's very symbolic. It's appropriate. And then, you know, they end it again with, you know, Velma and Roxy on stage. And it's a nice, a nice way, I think, to get, to show people that, hey, musicals can't happen and they can be successful if they're framed right. And I feel like it's that distinction, if they're framed right, that's actually kind of worth considering because we see a lot of musicals, especially the more modern ones, that don't really hit that mark 100%. There are musicals that came out in the 70s and the early 80s that, that worked, that, that accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to hit on that too hard but, like, again, things like Grease and West Side Story, which transitioned from the realm of theater to the realm of film, worked great. As you suggested, Chicago, another example where it changed an adaptation, but it worked great. Sweeney Todd, another one with near critical acclaim, worked amazingly despite a lot of changes in transition. And then we get into stuff where it didn't change necessarily well, where, where things weren't handled correctly. Les Miserables, for example. Phantom of the Opera. Rent. Though, to be fair, Rent sucked to begin with. <laughs> I fucking hate Rent. I'm sorry. It's annoying. When Team, America, when Team America World Police did that thing, everyone has AIDS, I didn't know what it was at the time. I saw Rent, and I immediately was like, oh, that's what they that's were saying what it, about. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, I, I hadn't seen Rent at that point, but I knew. I knew it was Rent that they were making fun of. I'm like, ha. <laughs> But, yeah, but I mean, even so, like, that still failed in adaptation. You know, Les Mis is another example. Les Mis in particular is really weird for me, because having musical numbers in this movie that feels like fucking Saving Private Ryan is just very strange, and I don't entirely feel like the person who planned that out thought about it particularly well. I think they tried too hard to set it in such a they wanted to make it very true life in the setting but having the music in that sense made it just not work um it, it definitely had that disconnect when you tried to put the two together like when i first saw the the preview for les miserables in the theater i was like oh my god this would be amazing and like tears were running down my face like oh god this is fabulous and then i watched it and i'm like this doesn't quite work as much as I had hoped. But then I actually went and saw Les Miserables in the theater and just tears throughout the entire thing. It was phenomenal seeing everybody present it. So it's just, it all goes in how it's framed and how it's presented. It just, it kind of goes to that. It's like when you're trying to make something gritty and realistic and true to life and then break out into song at the same time, it just does not, and like it, it, it loses something. There's there's a distinct amount of tonal dissonance in how that applies. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that we've actually seen films become musicals that in some cases weren't even musicals to begin with or didn't even seem like they'd fit, but they managed to make that work. Saturday Night Fever started out as a fucking dance movie based around the Bee Gees and became 
a fairly successful and well-produced musical. Uh, Sister Act. There was music in it, but it was entirely a movie that was partially a diegetic musical, but was also framed more around the music not really being meant to convey emotion so much as it was meant to be a performance in universe. So it could kind of go either way. And they just turned it into a straight up musical. And of course, fucking Hairspray. Oh, don't get me started on Hairspray. I hated it. <laughs> I hate the musical Hairspray. I have been a big fan of Hairspray, the movie. And it just, I, I loved it. It, you know, conveyed the tone of the, um, you know, that time where we were ending segregation and the music around that time where, you know, we were, people were embracing artists of color, but they still weren't allowing people, you know, to be a part of that world, you know, and letting them on TV, things like that. And then they present it as the musical and it just kind of takes everything away. It just, it didn't, it didn't work for me. Again, it lost something in that conveyance. I mean, people love it. I'm not a fan. Which is completely understandable. Like, I mean, for me, I felt like it lost something just because it lost a lot of the John Waters touch. Yeah. Because John Waters, for that period of time where he was a great author, made some of the most vile and revulsive shit, but it worked and it was interesting and you could experience it and feel like you got something unique out of it. And the musical loses it, but I feel like it's more successful than it had any right to be, considering that it was based off of a movie where Divine was, you know, a major character. I also feel like it's kind of interesting, like, doing research for this, I noticed that Sweeney Todd, the producers, and Little Shop of Horrors have this really weird transition path where they all started out as films, then became musicals, and then became musical films. And for the most part, while I don't feel like the, the musical version of the producers holds up particularly well, they all managed to stay pretty intact through all of their adaptations. So Sweeney Todd originally started out its life as kind of a, I guess, maybe like a fable or a story that was told around, but became a film twice in 1928 and 1936. Then somebody had the idea to make it a play in 1973, then a musical in 1979, and then Tim Burton somehow saw that, said, yes, this is a thing that I want to make into a movie, and turned that into a movie starring Johnny Depp in 2007, which, despite the fact that most Tim Burton movies can be followed by a movie starring Johnny Depp, was actually a really successful and interesting piece of work based around something that had changed both so much and yet not very much at all in adaptation from story to film to musical to film musical. Again, the producers started out as just a regular movie in 1968. Uh, Mel Brooks brought it to the stage in 2001, and it became a film in 2005. And while I feel like that's the weakest of the examples, it, it mostly didn't change very much in adaptation, except for the adding of the musical numbers. Little Shop of Horrors is probably the weirdest one in that it changed a lot in its initial adaptation from being a Roger Corman film to becoming a musical in the early 80s. Because, I mean, despite the fact that Roger Corman is one of the most ridiculous filmmakers on the planet, not a lot of his stuff is going to necessarily hold up to the idea of applying musical theater to it. But it worked. They, they took the concept and they still made it work. And then they transitioned it to a sort of weird counterculture musical in the early 80s, and it still worked. 
And it's, I don't know if these particular things are just idiot proof or not, but they, they show, I think, that some things can survive adaptation in multiple directions, but there needs to be a decent amount of care applied, and in some cases, a good amount of change in adaptation from one to the other. Absolutely, but each one, it has to have an anchor of sorts. You have to have, I think as long as you have that initial concept and you have someone that knows what they're doing with that initial concept, you, it, it's basically kind of foolproof in that it's going to be properly adapted um, unless you know, you're like a total moron. That's definitely fair because we've absolutely seen that happen. Yeah. Joel Schumacher. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, what did you do to Batman? Why? Why bat nipples? But yeah. But the one thing I think that's interesting here is looking at these different things, I feel like if you look at them in the confines of trying to convert them to a video game, not much would really have to change in adaptation. Like, as an example, there'd have to be mechanics added, but I really feel like you could turn Sweeney Todd into a stealth action game. I could see it. I'd play it. Right, and you wouldn't have to strip out anything. You wouldn't have to change the musical numbers. You wouldn't have to change the presentation because the players would already be immediately invested in the idea of the surrealist nature of, oh, here's a guy, and he murders people that, to make them into cakes, and he's fucking singing about it, and now I have to sneak around and fucking catch this guy to get him into the barber shop and murder him, whatever the shit, and okay, I'm on board, let's go. Video games exist in a world where the absurd is not really that absurd. I mean, we started off, depending upon how old you are, in places in gaming where the, the most identifiable and most successful concepts are often the most ridiculous. When gaming started, Pong was a big thing, but you also had Pac-Man, about a yellow dude who ate dots and ran from ghosts. If you started during the, the third console generation with the NES, your first identifiable experience was Mario, a plumber who lived in a fucking kingdom with giant goddamn pipes, trying to save a woman from a giant fucking dinosaur that spit fire, and his army of turtles and mushrooms by way of eating mushrooms yourself to get bigger and then eating flowers to spit fire or some shit. If you came in in the fourth console generation, pretty much the same fucking thing, but you also had a talking hedgehog who was fighting a fat guy who made robots for some fucking reason. And the robots were made out of, like, bunnies and birds, and we don't know why. There has always been that very specific, absurd element to the things that we latch onto, even going into the PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3 era. Grand Theft Auto, as a franchise, is one of the most absurd fucking things in existence, because it's constantly about one to four people acting as this singular point of waging war on an entire city for some reason or another. No matter how good the stories they tell are, there's always a specific degree of, wait, so I'm this silent guy who drove a fucking tank into this one facility to kill off a mob boss. Okay, sure. You know, it's it's there's a distinct amount of absurdity, and players just fucking go with it. You could easily staple the idea of a musical to the absurd world of gaming, and it wouldn't matter. It's like when we take those things out and put them into film, they don't work. Like, nobody was clamoring for a sequel to Super Mario Brothers or Street Fighter. 
and video games have to change a lot in adaptation, but you wouldn't really have to change musicals much at all because we're already used to the idea of stuff being ridiculous and weird. Unless it's, you know, the underwater levels in Kingdom Hearts. I mean, those are just frustrating. That that doesn't <laughs> have anything to do with, like, absurdism not working necessarily. It's just annoying. It is. No, I, I absolutely agree. And it's... The, the, the thing that I think is important here is that, from a musical perspective, perhaps most interestingly, is that a lot of the questions that come up when trying to deal with a musical are often put aside. And we can use Tokyo Mirage Sessions as an example of this. Nobody questions in this game why there's these instant scene transitions to a battle arena from wherever you're navigating in the world of Tokyo Mirage Sessions, because it's a common thing that we've been exposed to by games for generations. It's not weird in that game that you're suddenly going to this whole new battle arena because we're just, we're used to it. We accept it. It's not weird that the characters are beating their enemies with the power of song or that in some cases characters are literally doing a costume change and singing at their enemies to deal added damage with magical effects or whatever because we've seen stuff like this for years at this right. point. It's accepted. Right, like... If, if you had seen something in any kind of a, a film musical or whatever where a character was in battle and all of a sudden changed their costume and started singing a fucking J-pop song in an enemy before casting an ice spell on them, that'd be weird. But if you see this in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, it's the most normal thing. Like, we jokingly would talk about the different things that were happening within the game, but for the most part, and, you know, you, you can tell me if I'm incorrect here, I don't get the feeling that anybody felt like, wow, this is just too ridiculous. I can't deal with this. No, it just, it was completely accepted that this was happening. And yeah, we put fun at it, but we put fun at everything. And it just, it did not seem outlandish in the point where we could not accept that it was part of the game environment and part of the setting and the, the world that was presented to us in this game. Right. And the game does a great job of not only making its musical numbers evoke that emotion that you were talking about, but by make it makes them diegetic, which is not a thing you see very often. As you said, musicals are generally considered to be a case where the music itself is non-diegetic, but is used as a way of evoking an emotion that the person can't directly express. Outside of Chicago, with the beginning and the end songs being wholly diegetic, can you really think of a lot of musicals that you've seen, interacted with, whatever, where it's explicit that these, these songs are diegetic on purpose? Yeah, definitely Cabaret. Um, you know, having that place where you can, where it, you're, you're, you're escaping from these horrors happening around, at, you know, during this time in Germany. Um, you know, and also the uh, springtime for Hitler and the producers. It just that level of absurdity that just wants to be presented in the film that you can, it wants to present the world that they're in and it wants for people to have that absurdity acceptable. If you understand what I'm saying. I do. And it's like, basically they, they are looking for the ability to present this absurd concept in a way that's believable and real utilizing the power of song, but utilizing it in sort of a 
actual diagenic in-universe performance so that this is believed to be a thing that's actually happening. We, we accept the, the caveat that this universe is a little weird and we're okay with that. Right. right. But I mean, okay, in Cabaret in Chicago, in The Producers, these things which are considered to be inherently diegetic are in-universe performances. Outside of in-universe performances, it's pretty rare when you have a song be diegetic in a film or in theater. They're, they're meant for that conveyance of emotions, more or less. Is that, about, is that about right? Correct. Okay. In the world of Tokyo Mirage Sessions, these performances have some in-universe performance instances. For example, when you start the game off, there is a sequence where the characters, about like an hour or two hours in, ultimately go to meet Kiria, one of the party members that's going to join the group. And she has an in-universe performance that is actually showcased as being a stage show of sorts. And then again, after that battle is over with and the female Durotagonist, name I can't fucking remember to save my life right now, ends up recording her first song, again, they show her music video and they show it as an in-universe performance. But the game also utilizes music quite a bit as actual musical numbers that are not in-universe performances, but are considered diegetic. There's a sequence in, I want to say, Chapter 3, uh, where one of the characters joins up and ultimately does a small diegetic musical performance to help break somebody's concentration. This is not an in-universe performance. Nobody else sees this except for the characters, but it's diegetic. And the person is using it as a way of expressing their emotions. In battle, the characters can interrupt normal attack combinations with what are called ad-lib performances. Ad-lib performances allow the character to interrupt the attack action that you have chosen to perform a different attack action. When they perform this different attack action, in a lot of cases, the characters will undertake in-universe diegetic performances. Not for necessarily for the purpose of expressing emotion, but just because it's a thing that they do. So again, when Kidia breaks into her song, she actively starts... She full-on changes her costume, and actively starts singing at the enemy. It's great. It, it's fucking awesome. Because you, you don't... Not only do you not see that in video games very often, but this isn't a thing that film or theater do, really. No, it would be completely... It, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work with film or, film or theater, because you just don't quite... You don't really... You don't have that level of acceptance in film or theater for something like that to happen. Right, it's... There's a certain implicit level of direct trust that the audience has with the performers or with the film or what have you. And the audience has to be able to exercise a greater degree of suspension of disbelief the more that you're doing. Now, in musicals, there's a lot of instances where suspension of disbelief is elevated and lifted and given a lot more leeway. And it's this suspension of disbelief, and I want to stress this, that is very important in how all of these mediums interact with their viewing audience. For example, in the world of theater, 
Suspension of disbelief is generally a lot harder to break unless you actively go out of your way to go out of character. Well, it also kind of depends on, you know, it's more for the um, the casual theater goer. It's a lot harder to break uh, suspension of disbelief. But if you're actively, you know, aware of the technical goings on, that suspension of disbelief is really, really easy to break. But as the, as the casual theater goer, they can easily put themselves in the place of allowing the events that are happening, that are transpiring on stage to, to be accepted. Oh, sure. But... That's the same with any sort of a, a entertainment medium when we're approaching it from a critical versus a non-critical perspective. Like, as an example, when I do critical analysis of video games, it, it's a lot easier for me to break from appreciating the narrative in something because I've seen thousands of games. I know what they're trying to do, and I can compare those narratives because I am essentially, for better or worse, a game critic. And in your perspective, you are kind of a theatrical critic in that regard because you've been exposed to a lot of theatrical performances, film performances, and you have a more critical eye for that sort of thing. So, as I was told the other night, uh, your roommate was watching a performance with you uh, and she enjoyed it and you were pissed that the acting sucked. <laughs> I wasn't pissed that the acting sucked. I mean, there was, there was good things, there was bad things, and the level of acting wasn't the same across the board. So it's a lot easier to, um, I guess, to be critical of that when you have, you know, someone who's obviously supposed to be from Alabama, who sounds like he's from New York, uh, and then someone else who's singing and trying to evoke emotion and constantly going into sharp tones that kind of hurt your ears. But, you know, it can still be a good job done, but... Yeah, it's a lot easier to be critical <laughs> when you know what's happening. Exactly. So it's the thing is, most medium is aimed toward the casual viewer. I think, right. like you'll get you'll get those technical pieces that are aimed toward the more critically minded person. In in the world of theater, I I have no idea what that thing would be. Maybe the producers. Yeah, definitely the producers because they're aware of what's happening in the background so they know the kind of situations that you could be in when trying to make a play happen. Right. And, you know, the the in-joke in that particular narrative works even if you're not involved in it. But for somebody who is involved in it, that idea of let's make a play that loses money so that it will actually recoup on it, for a lot of actual critical-minded people, is like, eh, that'd probably work, maybe. Yep. And, again, in... in in all different kinds of mediums, they have that sort of a thing. I can't speak authoritatively from a, a film or theatrical perspective of films or theater that would work, but I can speak from a video gaming perspective, and there are a lot of games that are being made for critics, as weird as that sounds. Like, The Stanley Parable is a game that questions the nature of play. It puts you into a position and has the narrator dictate where it is it wants you to go. You go in that direction, or you don't, and if you don't, the game starts asking more and more questions about what it means to be a person interacting with this world, what it means to be in this story. It, it has a lot of really interesting questions about the state and nature of play and the reason why things exist. The Magic Circle is a game that allows for that sort of outside-of-the-box interaction where you hack things in the environment in order to make a game that's broken and been in development hell for years actually a functional and viable game, and so on and so on. 
I mean, I could, especially in the past few years, go on about games that tweak and question elements of play. Uh, the Beginner's Guide, Pony Island, as an example, which you were there for that, I believe, when I was playing Pony Island. Yes, it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, and and that's that's what I'm talking about. Undertale is another example, but Pony Island in particular was a game that presented its own narrative in a way that it was confident of, but also actively attempted to question the nature of mechanical play and structures. And I mean, not everybody got it. Aaron thought it was a little bit more pretentious than it needed to be. But for the most part, I got the impression that everybody walked away from that experience understanding what it was trying to convey through the multiple different levels of interaction it had with the player between the presentation of Lucifer being how he was, the ghost being how he was, and so on, that even if you weren't somebody who was more critically minded, you could still walk away with something interesting. And the thing is, is that these games aren't necessarily, the, the general majority of games aren't necessarily made for the critic. Some are. Some movies are, etc. But for the general masses, it's a lot easier to have that sort of suspension of disbelief or where you're willing to buy into whatever so long as it works within the limited technical knowledge that you have going in. So, for example, on its face, something like Cats just seems fucking weird. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> right, but if you can... As somebody walking in for the first time to see this from a theatrical presentation perspective, you can lose yourself pretty easily in the concept of suspension of disbelief because you know, okay, I'm walking into a play about talking, singing cats who live in a junkyard. Let's go. And so long as you open yourself up to that concept, which admittedly may not be the easiest thing, but it is one of the longest running plays in existence for a reason, you can lose yourself in this world of talking, singing cats. Right, because of the presentation of humanity within these characters. It's like it's easy for someone to forget that they're watching a play about people with painted on, you know, jumpsuits and, and fur all over their faces um, because of how it's written and how it's presented. Right, and it's it's a lot of theater has that ability to take you out of it because of the presentation in the here and now, the in-the-moment execution of the production, to where you know you're watching a theatrical presentation, but you also have a certain amount of added surrealism that makes it easier for this production to work the way it needs to to help you suspend disbelief. Like in a theater, in a theatrical production, again, take, say, Phantom of the Opera. Uh, when candles start rising out of the stage, it's not what the fuck, candles are riding out of the stage, this is bullshit. It's, oh, okay, now we're here. And mm -hmm. you can just go with it. That doesn't work in a film production. Right. Or it can, but it requires a lot of care. Absolutely. The way I think the most recent film did it, uh, it just didn't quite work. Because I think it just kind of presented it as a, a dream sequence and then never touched on again. And they just kind of... Then they, it showed up again in reality... And it just, how? You know, th th there was no understanding of, like, how would this lone person take the care to set all this up? 
Right. It's it's you either need a certain degree of obvious established surrealism going in so that the person knows what you need to establish your rules. Number one, you need to establish your rules in a way that makes sense to the viewer. And you need to never deviate from those rules unless it's justified. But you also need to do it in a way that you and the viewer can agree makes sense. Again, Little Shop of Horrors is a weird fucking musical about a talking plant who eats people. From space. From space. From space. And it totally fucking makes sense. And it totally works because it totally adheres to its own weird logic. Phantom of the Opera didn't really work because they present it as being realistic and they only ever really get into surrealism in a couple of occasions. But then they kind of break the suspension of disbelief as to what is truly surreal and what isn't. Like, the candles rising up out of the lake in the play is a scene transition. If you're in the theater, you can look at that and you can say, oh, that's a scene transition. Right, okay. we're, we're moving settings. Right, if you see it in the movie, it's, okay, did we just imagine that happening? Is that a thing that really happened? Did Why would you have fucking candles in the middle of this lake? And it's, it's, film has a much more fragile suspension of disbelief because the agreement inherent between the person viewing it and the person creating it is different. In theater, you walk in objectively knowing that you're going to have to suspend a certain amount of your disbelief for that performance to get it to work. With film, we know that technology is advanced and that shooting is advanced and, you know, Film language has advanced to a point where the only reason you should have to heavily suspend disbelief is if the author conveys to you or whoever conveys to you early on in the production that this is going to be some weird shit. Like somebody who's walking into Die Hard has very little suspension of disbelief they have to deal with. Somebody walking into Antichrist has to deal with a lot of fucking suspension of disbelief right from the start. You know, it's it's the difference between trying to appreciate Remember the Titans or Space Jam. And it's, I can appreciate Space Jam, but I couldn't have appreciated Space Jam if the first 50% was just live-action, gritty, realistic basketball stuff, and then all of a sudden, like, all of the Chicago Bulls get injured and fucking Bugs Bunny subs in for them. That'd be fucking weird. But video games start off from this inherent place where suspension of disbelief is just... It's a given. Right. It's... We know. Because no matter when you started playing video games, you have played some weird video game. And every generation just has weird stuff that they've been exposed to. Whether it's Super Mario Brothers, or Sonic the Hedgehog, or Hadamari Damacy, or Harappa the Rappa, or Samba de Amigo, or... You know, even, like, the games that try to support themselves as being semi-serious are a bit ridiculous. Dead Rising is about a zombie virus that's contracted by bee stings, or wasp stings, whatever the fuck they are. And breaking a queen wasp will kill all of the zombies in your immediate vicinity for some reason. Trauma Center is based around the idea that this dude draws a star, and he can magically, like, kill viruses with a fucking scalpel, somehow. It's... <clears throat> Even in things that try to present themselves as serious, there's a very big amount of, what the fuck, uh, okay, I'm, I'm good, I can deal with this, 
And the games try to ease you into the idea of them being just these surrealist nightmares. Like, for example, in Trauma Center, they start off simply, you just perform surgeries. Then, oh, now I have the power to slow down time with my, you know, magical star drawing power. Okay. Then, like, five missions later, oh, shit, now it's viruses that can only be defeated by my magical time-stopping power. They ease you into it. And we've played so many video games that we understand shit's going to get weird and we're just ready to go along for the ride. We have that freedom to be able to to do stuff like that with, with, this, with video games. Right, because players immediately expect that there's going to be a certain amount of weird when they go into a game. They expect that the fourth wall is going to be broken because the game is going to have to tell them, press X not to die, or whatever the shit. It's going to have icons appear on the screen indicating what you need to do. It's going to have menus and inventory systems and whatnot that directly break the illusion but still allow the player to have that certain degree of suspension of disbelief. Right, that, that submersion into, into the world that they're, that they're presenting. Right, and the video games have a much tighter suspension of disbelief. Like, if you look at it from an appropriate perspective, film generally has a very thin suspension of disbelief, like maybe yarn, in a lot of cases. Unless the author, producer, director, whatever, go out of their way to convince the viewer that the thing that they are watching is ridiculous and that's fine, just go with it. Mel Brooks, uh, anything from Monty Python, things like that. Right, or even Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. They tell you right up front, these guys are high on drugs a lot and we're going to show you that. And a good director can fuck with that suspension of disbelief a bit to get you more involved or to make you care more or to make you more invested. But a bad director can very easily snap that suspension of disbelief in, in a scene, in a line, in some cases. Theater is more like hard rope. You go in expecting a certain amount of what the fuck when you go into a theater because you know that... Broadway musicals in general have gotten weirder and weirder as time has gone on. And the things that you're being presented require a certain degree of, yeah, okay, I know this isn't real. I know that they have to do these scene transitions and whatever, but that's okay. So you, you have a certain amount of in extra trust that you put in the hands of the person making this play or this theatrical production. Video games, it's like steel cabling. You have to do a lot to make suspension of disbelief get fucked up. Not adhering to your own mechanics can certainly be a problem, but otherwise, for the most part, you can tell some pretty ridiculous stories in the world of gaming, and people will just fucking go with it. So, for me, it feels like musicals should be a natural thing. They can be adapted to video games. You know, you can't necessarily adapt them very well to film anymore, because that really thin line of how people suspend their disbelief watching film makes it difficult for them to suspend their disbelief watching a movie musical unless the director puts a hell of a lot of work in in the beginning. Absolutely. They definitely have to know what they're doing. Right. And it's, again, especially more so with modern ones that aren't produced under the bubble of the cheery 60s and 70s type films, but more so because like A Hard Day's Night, as an example, would not survive as a film that people gave a shit about today. And we know that because 
Spice World and Josie and the Pussycats both fucking bombed in the theaters. Hey everyone, time for another brief interlude as I correct my past self here. As I step in to note that I was in fact incorrect in this assessment, Spice World was, in actuality, a financial success. It was just a critical failure. The movie made basically $75 million more than its budget, so obviously it was a significant financial success just in theaters alone, not counting its DVD release. Josie and the Pussycats, however, was a failure all across the board, so that one's still correct. Thank you. From a theatrical perspective, musicals work a lot better. It's a lot easier for them to work. But there's still that certain amount of diegetic language that makes it difficult for them to be presented in a way where we believe that everybody is singing whatever song they have in their hearts and it's actually happening in the world. We still kind of approach it from the idea of music being non-diegetic. In the world of video games, music can be fucking diegetic and we're totally okay with that. Like, it wouldn't even be weird. And I know this because it happens in Tokyo Mirage Sessions and it isn't even weird. It's entertaining. It fits. It doesn't take you out of what you're experiencing. Not at all. It, it Not only does it not take you out of what you're experiencing, it works in context. Like, another example for that would be Persona 4 Dancing All Night, which I know yep. we played on stream a bit. A bit. A lot. It was great. A lot. A lot, yeah. <laughs> and... Like, the characters are dancing to defeat fucking shadow monsters. It is clearly a fucking diegetic musical. The music is presented as being a thing that is happening in the world. They, they justify this as being, yes, we're definitely listening to and dancing to this music. And that's totally justified by the narrative. And it works. And it's going to defeat these monsters. Yes, it makes these shadow monsters blow up. It saves teenage girls from being turned into weird dolls and shit. Like, it, it, it is a completely logical, rational thing that happens, that happens within the confines of this universe. And we don't question it. We don't question the narrative. Like, we might say that, oh, well, maybe this character isn't focused on as much as they should be, or maybe this character doesn't get a lot of development, but nobody says, dancing to defeat monsters is stupid, because... Okay, but it works. And, you know, everything in video games is stupid, as often as not. You can tell great stories, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that The Last of Us isn't, you know, a great piece of cinema within the confines of gaming, but video games give you that ability to tell the most absurd stories, just the most ridiculous, off-the-wall concepts, and players will buy into it. Yep, you have that freedom there to tell as many real, true-to-life stories if you wanted, but absolutely go batshit insane if you wanted to, and just let the creativity flow. You have that platform to be able to reach your audience and tell the, the weirdest, most out-there situations, and it's, it's going to work. And there, you, you have to completely screw it up like, you know, not have it work. This is the key thing that I want to ultimately cement for this particular episode. Video gaming is, by and large, a ridiculous world. There are great stories that can be told here. Absolutely. But there are also absurd stories that can be told. For every Silent Hill 2 or... 
The Last of Us or Uncharted 4 or Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors. There's a Super Mario Brothers or a Sonic the Hedgehog or a Zack and Wiki or the House of the Dead Overkill where absurdity is the norm in the situation and the players are okay with this and the players accept this as being completely reasonable within the confines of this medium. And with that in mind, it's worth noting musicals, in a lot of respects, are kind of ridiculous and weird. The idea that people, even as a metaphor for emotional expression, are going to burst into song at a moment's notice, kind of a weird concept. So the question is, these two concepts seem like they would fit pretty well together. So with that in mind, where are all the gaming musicals anyway? But that's a topic for another show. For this particular show, I believe we are at about where we need to be. So I just want to say thank you very much, Lola, for coming out. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. And you are welcome back anytime you might have something you want to discuss. Well, thank you. Uh, but that's going to do it for this show. Join us next week when our topic will be games that make you feel like you're eating bees. My name is Mark B. On behalf of Lola Mendoza, thank you very much for listening, and stay safe out there, junkers.